and you can find it in the book of Hebrews chapter 13, one of the last books in your Bible. And the reason we turn to Hebrews 13 verse 7 this day is something of an annual tradition at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. As the month of February is Nominations Month, where our members can prayerfully consider men that they might nominate to be considered for an elder or deacon in the church, we always take a pause the first Sunday in February from our ongoing morning series to think about God's Word and what it has to say about faithful leadership in the Lord's church. And even later on, of course, in this service, we'll be installing a few men to serve as officers in this church. And so we just want to think about that faithful leadership God requires from His people from one simple verse in Hebrews chapter 13, and that verse is number 7. So let me read that simple text for us, and I pray that God would bless our study, and then we'll begin together. So listen once again as the Lord does speak to you through His perfect Word. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we thank you that your steadfast love fills the earth, and according to that same love, we do pray today that you would teach us your truth. You have spoken unto us your word, that it might be our delight, that it might be our counsel. We know that your testimony is righteous forever and give us understanding that we might live through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. A notable Christian press published a book about 10 years ago that was titled The Gospel-Centered Leader. And the author, who was a world-renowned pastor and church leader for a movement of house churches that he had created on the other side of the Atlantic. He published an excerpt of that book in promotion of its uh, publication, and that article, that excerpt was titled, Where Have All the Good Men Gone? And in that article, he bemoaned how you would look throughout churches in the world and find no small number of stories of faithless leaders who had guided God's flock along the way. And so he asked the question, has God's spirit departed from his church? And as he wrote that book and pressed his finger on what he thought was a principal problem, he said it was because too many churches had adapted and even aped worldly concerns about business and leadership such that church planters and pastors that were most treasured and cherished were those that had the risky entrepreneurial spirit when in reality what God requires in his word of church leaders is that they be Christ-like in their character and that they be able to teach. Fast forward five years and Christianity Today ran a rather spectacular expose of that leader's removal from his prominent position due to, quote, a pattern of spiritual abuse through bullying and intimidation, overbearing demands in the name of mission and discipline, rejection of critical feedback, and an expectation of unconditional loyalty. Where indeed have the gospel-centered leaders gone You know, if you have eyes to see, you've seen in recent years, no doubt, in our nation, 
that we've come to something of a crisis of authority in the land. You know, if you have ears to hear, what do you hear related to authority in America? Well, the experts would tell you, of course, you can't trust the authority of religion because science has proved that it's nothing more than human-centered superstition. Experts would often say you, you, you can't trust the authority of science because the next generation of scientists are just going to disprove the present generation's findings and conclusions. Or you can't trust the authority of a democratic majority because such majorities are always tyrannical in the end of all things. You can't trust the authority of the courts because they're just playing politics. You can't trust the authority of the philosophers because they're just playing games with language. You can't trust the authority of the media because they're biased. And children better not trust the authority of their parents lest they not be allowed to be who they are. It's a crisis of authority that's actually come into many denominations and local churches as allegations of abuse, as stories of Major failings have hit the newswire such that those same experts say you can't trust the authority of God-ordained and appointed leaders. You can't even trust the congregation to hold such accountable. What you really need are academics to come in and independent investigations to tell the church how they should actually go about their process of leadership. That's all a dark and dour outlook, isn't it, when you really think about it? But what I'm here to say this morning, in part, is that the Bible tells a much better story, a much holier story related to authority. The Bible says that godly authority is good, that that faithful leadership is a blessing, that holy, loving, obedient leaders exist all over the place. We tend not to hear their story, however. And what we'll see in Hebrews this morning is that these are leaders... Worth remembering. These are leaders worth considering. These are leaders worth imitating. Because if you glance down at the verse that's before us today in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, you'll notice the students how it simply has, doesn't it, three verbs that introduce three different clauses. You have remember, you have consider, and you have imitate. So all I want to think about with you this morning for a few minutes as we lead into our time of installing new officers into the church, is think about the kind of leaders that we need in an ordinary church like ours. And of course, it's going to have immediate application to our life at Redeemer as this month. I said earlier, some of you are considering prayerfully men you might nominate to be considered as an elder or deacon. Well, these are men that you must consider, remember, And imitate, if we're following God's word, no doubt it has immediate application to those already installed as leaders in this church, that they strive to be those worth remembering, considering, and imitating. And surely it belongs, as we'll see along the way, to some more broader principles about leadership in the life of the church. So the kind of leaders we need, that's what we want to think about this morning. But let's think very briefly, here from the outset, get our bearings on this book of Hebrews, as a whole, uh, you might know that we don't know who wrote this book. No author is given to us. Various names have been proposed, but while we don't know who the author is, we know why he wrote the book. It's very clear that his audience was tempted to go back to the rites and the rituals of Old Testament Judaism, probably because of persecution that they were facing for their Christian beliefs in the first century. So what the author to the Hebrews does... Are, 
two simple ways you can kind of summarize the aims of this book. First of all, and primarily, what he wants the readers to do, what he wants people like you and me to do, is to stop and to stare at the supremacy of Jesus. Because from chapter 1 onward, what he's going to do is urge Christians to consider how Jesus is better. That he's better than Moses, he's better than Joshua, he's better than Melchizedek, he's better than the Old Testament priesthood, he's better than the Old Testament sacrifices, that the privileges, that the promises we have in Jesus are so great, it's almost as though his simple pastoral exhortation to the Hebrews is, why would you ever want to go back to that, given what you have here? And it's not just staring at the supremacy of Christ, he's urging them to steadfastness, in Jesus Christ. It's clear enough in this book that there were those, perhaps even from this congregation, that had been imprisoned for their faith. And so he's urging them to perseverance and endurance. It's why, famously, Hebrews is full of warning passages meant to stir and spur people on to that steadfastness. So, if you look at chapter 13 as it begins, what you get in chapter 13, it really feels like just this kind of brief bullet point list of final applications in this word of exhortation that he's given to the Hebrews. Notice in verse 1, let love continue. Verse 2, show hospitality. Verse 3, remember those who are persecuted. You notice in verse 4, it's treasure purity. And verse 5 and 6, it's pursue contentment. And then we get to verse 7. Our text and the ongoing final list of applications uh, this author has for his audience. Uh, We can say today, can't we, that the Lord has... For us, it's about leaders, the kind of leaders that we need. First of all, leaders worth remembering. Because you see, verse 7, once again, the verb that kickstarts our passage is nothing more than the verb remember. I was out on a, a long run earlier this week, and I spent some of those miles listening to a podcast between, uh, or a conversation on a podcast with two runners who had gone on a very long run themselves, this very long trail race, and they talked about getting to a point in that race where they just thought they they weren't going to be able to reach the finish line. And for reasons I don't really remember, it was evidently there on the trail that they began to talk with each other about a recently departed parents who had died early on in their life. And in the course of that conversation, they kind of looked at each other and said, well, our parents are going to carry us on to the finish line. And you might understand what what they mean there, because of course... Recently departed parents have no actual power to spur people on to a finish line. But there is energy in a memory, isn't there? That our memories are often peculiarly powerful in spurring us, stirring us, enlivening us, animating us. And so it's why what you'll get throughout the Bible is this very consistent command and reminder to God's people throughout the ages. Remember. Don't forget. Remember who God is. Remember his wondrous works. Remember his mighty deeds. So much of this book to this point has been little more than just remember Jesus Christ. And now he's saying, well, remember your leaders. It's actually the first time in Hebrews that the author has spoken about church leaders. Such has been his concentration on the supremacy of Jesus Christ. But here as he reaches the end of his book, he's clearly concerned with leadership that they are enjoying and 
to whom they must submit. Because you'll notice verse 17. Leaders pop up again in chapter 13 of Hebrews. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And then if you glance down to verse 24, you'll see he simply commands, Greet all your leaders. And part of the reason it seems like he's so interested in remembering leaders is because there were bad leaders that were there striking against the Hebrew congregation. Because, of course, you can notice in verse 9 that there's this temptation, the author says, about them being led away by diverse and strange teaching. So, in the face of that kind of false leadership confronting them, he's saying, well, a mark of holiness is, is remember your leaders. And where verse 17 of Hebrews 13, it speaks about present leaders. Verse 7, the one before us, it's actually speaking about past leaders. Those who, of course, were involved with this church from its very founding, which you'll notice as the text continues in verse 7, makes clear, remember your leaders. Who are they? Those who spoke to you the word of God. Uh, That language of speaking the word of God, it's just kind of like New Testament shorthand for the preaching and proclamation of Christ that converts people from sin unto the Savior, that builds up the kingdom, that establishes churches and sends forth the glory of Christ to the nations. These were the ones that had departed, evidently. The people that had planted this church, pastored this church, they had been shepherding and serving in this church, and they're marked out, they're distinguished, you'll notice, and it is significant, uh, they're distinguished first and foremost as those who spoke God's word to God's people. You know, one of the leaders in church history in ages past that I so often remember, and many of you would know it if you've been here long enough at Redeemer, because I mentioned him enough, is Charles Haddon Spurgeon, this great preacher in the 19th century in England, well, his favorite leader in centuries past to remember was another English preacher named John Bunyan. And Spurgeon famously said of Bunyan, prick him anywhere and he will bleed Bible. Such was the saturation of his soul in the truth of God's word. Remember your leaders, he says. Prick them in that memory and you recall Bible that they gave to you. You know, when you consider those leaders that you might nominate to be an officer here at the church, that's a good question to ask. If I pricked him, what would bleed forth, spiritually speaking, with the language that he uses, with the desires that he espouses? Of course, we want men that you prick them, they don't bleed first and foremost, BCO and bylaws, they bleed Bible not politics and procedures, but the proclamation of Jesus. Not what they saw this week in sports or on the screens, but the scripture that has taken hold of their heart. It's even a good question we should ask of our own hearts, isn't it? If someone was to prick you, what ordinarily bleeds forth in your language and your lives, demonstrating what you hold dearest? These are leaders worth remembering. Those that speak God's word. Notice, secondly, leaders worth considering. Verse 7 continues, doesn't it? Consider the outcome of their way of life. Now, the ESV translation that I have in front of me, and I know many of you do, you'll see that it translates this second verb, consider, as an imperative. So a command. 
Uh, in the original language, it's actually a participle. And some of you students are up to date enough on your grammar, you know the difference between an imperative and a participle. Many of you probably have no idea what is the difference between an imperative and a participle. All it means is in the original language, we would translate it something like, remember your leaders, those who spoke God's word to you, considering the outcome of their faith. And we have to wonder, what was the outcome of their faith? Because it's possible, because we're thinking primarily, at least originally here, about remembering past leaders, and of course its obvious implications to present leadership, if maybe the author to the Hebrews is simply saying, because it seems quite certain in this book that some of these leaders would have been martyred for their faith, that maybe he's saying, consider the outcome of their life, namely that they died for Jesus. And understand, you might have to die for Jesus too. I think it's better though, it's certainly in context that seems right for us to recognize, he's, he's calling them to consider how their life ended. Not just how it went, but how their life ended. What kind of lessons can you glean from how they lived their life in Christ Jesus? And it's this kind of encouragement and exhortation that I think almost gives us nearly a, a biblical proof text and perhaps even a rationale for why so many Christians throughout the centuries outside of Scripture, have found few genres to encourage them in godliness like Christian biography. Because what do you tend to do when you read biographies of old saints that have gone before us? What are you doing? You're considering the outcome of their life. You're noticing the fruits, the acts of faithfulness, the declarations of truth that marked their life. And of course, this it's something that we need to consider even with our own leaders, observing them, the outcome even presently of how their life has gone to this point, which I think does communicate to us a need for patience in our evaluation. And I was thinking about this in a way with a church member last Sunday evening after the service, and somehow we got onto the subject of books on parenting, and I lamented how one recent best-selling book on parenting was written by a couple whose oldest child was eight years old. And of course, I thought to myself, we haven't seen the outcome of their parenting yet. But we live in an age that values the perspective of youth to that kind of degree, where a platform in place of social media prominence means listen to my wisdom. Even though I haven't lived long enough to have much wisdom, of course, we're not demanding here that elders in this church, deacons in this church, be of a certain age. But what I'm telling you, as you consider these men, we want to have some degree of an honest conscience before the Lord that we've observed them for a noticeable period of time. Many of you know that you, you don't truly understand a person's character until you see them engage in a crisis. Sometimes I often say to seminary students when they're considering future leaders, pay attention to how church members react when they disagree with you. It shows a degree to which they have had holiness grow in their life where they can disagree without dividing, or perhaps a degree of immaturity that still resides where they don't know how to disagree without stirring up division. You remember these leaders. You consider these leaders. Thirdly, the kind of leaders we need are leaders worth imitating because you see the end of verse 7 simply says, and commands imitate their faith. A friend of mine was recently talking about years ago being at a Ligonier National Conference. 
And one morning, R.C. Sproul getting up and delivering a sad news that, that his very close friend, James Montgomery Boyce, who was a valiant and faithful preacher of the gospel in Philadelphia for many decades, he had succumbed at the age of 61 to a pancreatic cancer, and, and Sproul delivered that news that was, of course, sad. But at the same time, as he declared the news, he talked about the glory that belonged to a Boyce's life and ministry, because Sproul evidently announced that morning he died in the faith. And that, of course, is what we need at its heart with leaders. Leaders who speak in faith. Leaders who live in faith. Leaders who, who die in faith. Imitate such leaders is what the author to the Hebrews commands. And you do know, don't you, students, and I uh, trust children as well, like, you know how by virtue of being image bearers of God, we're a people of imitation. You know, we're meant to reveal and reflect the Lord's character. So it's why that you see children from the earliest age, they begin to imitate things they hear, they imitate their parents, they imitate their favorite superheroes. You can go to any sports field in a high school location and you'll see celebrations from an athlete that imitates their favorite superstar in the athletic arena. You can see students, of course, imitating the fashion sensibilities of their favorite celebrity. You can find preachers imitating their favorite pulpiteers or people that are made to imitate. The question is never, are you imitating someone? The question is, well, who's the person that you're actually imitating? And what the congregation there of the Hebrews needed to imitate was this faithful model of faithful leaders who had gone before them. You know, if you think about this, not just in the standpoint of, of preachers and, and church officers, how many of us could even encourage one another this day with stories of Sunday school teachers in decades past worthy of imitation? I can't tell you the number of times where I've been around aspiring seminary students and when they talk about the reason for their desire to serve the Lord in gospel ministry, it's often, yes, of course, the, the local church preacher that guided the congregation where they grew up, but it seems like just as often it's the simple faithfulness of Sunday school teachers pouring their lives into their young soul, showing forth their faith as they speak it, as they live it, and of course, even as they die in it. So what kind of leaders do we need? It's pretty simple. And I trust you even see it's altogether significant. Leaders worth remembering, considering, and leaders worth imitating. When Emily and I first got married, she was a NICU nurse. She still is a NICU nurse, but she was a full-time NICU nurse back then working night shifts. So that meant I was a, a newly minted husband with three nights of the week where I was home by myself. And this was actually a time where we didn't have any internet, and I often had no clue what to do when I was at home with that free time. And so more often than you would think, I would spend hours at a local half-price books, just kind of going up and down the aisles, staring at spines of books that I wanted to have but couldn't justify purchasing because the shelves at home were already sagging under books that I hadn't read back then, and let alone even read now, uh, getting close to 20 years later. And as I went up and down these rows, I tended to go up and down the theology section, so Christian living section, and uh, the history section. Um, and I noticed, at that time at least, 
No matter when I showed up, it seemed like the theology section had a noticeable number of books by a theologian that I had never heard of at the time, a theologian named Paul Tillich. And as I came with each passing week, it seemed like there were more Tillich books that were showing up. And so I wondered, well, who's this theologian? And why do people seemingly want to get rid of his books? And I did some simple little research and discovered, as you can do with simple little research, uh, that he was, in the mid-20th century, one of the most formidable, at least influential theologians in the world of Christian theology, such that in 1959, Time magazine ran a cover article on him titled, A Theology for Protestants. Yet as his life went on, it was not only clear that his theology wasn't Protestant at all, uh, but even his life wasn't Protestant in the way it must be. This kind of fantastically hit the news after he died and his wife published a memoir of sorts. And she talked about going into his locked desk drawers, expecting to see something about unpublished manuscripts, notes from his theological lectures. And what she found was nothing more than lots of lewd photographs and countless letters of these illicit dalliances that he had had throughout the decades in his life. There was a desk of drawers that should have revealed something of a spiritual harvest, but it was a desk of drawers that, once examined, uh, revealed the poverty of what the leadership was. And much like that author I said at the beginning asked, sometimes we want to ask ourselves, where have all the good leaders gone? Maybe even the Hebrews were tempted to think such things, as the author is encouraging them to remember their departed faithful leaders and obey their present faithful leaders. Well, you'll notice what he actually does. Where we need to end is where he goes next in verse 8, calling them to look to the leader himself. You see what verse 8 tells us. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's one of the most treasured, rightly so, declarations of Christ's majesty and eternity that You'll find all throughout the Bible. But if when you notice where it comes in context, uh, you would perhaps know why many scholars think it's though the, the author has just kind of dropped it in to this final list of exhortations with no immediate application to the surrounding realities and commands. But, but children, you need to know that, that, of course, the Spirit, when he inspires the authors of Scripture, never is just dropping random things into the text itself. It has a clear correlation to what's come before. And in some ways, the original language and its order reveals it because if you look again in verse 8, what it says in the original, in its order would sound more like, Jesus Christ is yesterday and today the same and unto the ages. So what does this church need to know about these faithful leaders? Well, remember them, consider them, imitate them. That same Christ that animated them. That that same Christ that you heard from their lips. Gloriously is the exact same Jesus today. That same Christ that commissions servants in his church. That pours out graces and gifts upon his church in the form of leaders. That Jesus Christ is the same today, tomorrow, and forever as one commentator said, although their former leaders were no longer available to guide and help them, Jesus Christ was always available, unchanging 
from year to year. We have reason to hope that faithful leaders can be found. As Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today. We have reason to hope that these leaders will speak God's word to you. Because Jesus Christ has done it before and he's still doing it now. We have reason to believe that we should have hope that faithful leaders living and dying in faith is an ordinary reality in the church. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the leader that we have. And let us rejoice that he gives us the leaders that we need. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would give us that great hope and faith, recognizing that however prevalent, even persistent, our shortcomings are in leading in this church, the Spirit is always sustaining us in his unity and peace. The Savior is always interceding for us that we'd be found faithful as his bride, as he sanctifies us and makes us holy, prepares us even for that day when he returns. Help us to be found faithful in every way as we do wait and even plead for the hastening of that time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.